Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. This week, I am very excited to be speaking with Lisa Magnon and Dr. Lucas Hassis of the Prize Papers Project. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about what the Prize Papers Project is? Yeah, so first of all, I would like to thank you for inviting us to this uh, podcast. We are very excited and we are delighted to be here, we must say. And in the Prize Papers Project, we are sorting, we are preserving, we are cataloging and digitizing the Prize Papers collection of the UK National Archives. Uh, The Prize Papers are a result of an early modern warfare practice, which witnessed its heyday in the context of 17th and 18th century European colonial expansion. And during wartime, hostile European powers would capture their enemy ships all over the world. And capturing, or as it was called, price-taking or privateering, depending on whether the ships were of the Royal Navy or private warships equipped with the letter of mark, was not a lawless act of piracy, but a legitimate warfare practice, the legality of which was examined before a court, the High Court of Admiralty in London. So whenever a raid was attempted on a ship, the crucial requirement for ensuring the legality of this action was that the captor was able to prove that the captured ship belonged to an enemy during the prevailing war. And for this purpose, often the entire shipload, including documents, all documents on board, the ship's papers, private and commercial documents, also mail and transit, and personal effects of the crew, for instance, were confiscated and transferred to the capital. And a court process was begun at the Admiralty Court, where the confiscated papers were used as evidence and then transferred to and stored in the court's archive. And uh, this later moved into the National Archives. And this practice of the price taking, therefore, in the end, resulted in a vast archive, an extraordinary archive of the early modern world, the Price Papers Collection, that contains uh, documents from more than 35,000 captured ships, captured between 1652 and 1817, held in, at the moment, in uh, 4,088 boxes. The Price Papers Collection includes at least 160,000 undelivered letters, but also accompanied by books and papers on all manner of legal, commercial, maritime, colonial, administrative matters. And geographically, this might also be interesting, the collection includes Europe and the Americas, Asia, Africa, and Australia even. And the aim of our German-UK Prize Papers project is the complete digitization, sorting, and cataloging of this collection. And we will present our documents with rich uh, metadata in an open access research database, the Prize Papers portal. And this year we started uh, to upload the first digitized documents, actually. And what I also have to say is that the Prize Papers project is part of the Göttingen Academy of Sciences and Humanities. It is based here at the University of Oldenburg, Germany, and the National Archives UK. And the project has been awarded 9.7 million euros in funding as part of the Academy's program of the Union of the German Academies of Sciences and Humanities for a prospective funding period of 20 years. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Just out of curiosity for this funding and the digitizing of the letters, are you transcribing and annotating or are you just visually digitizing the the images? Yeah, our our main goal is to digitize all the documents and it's a lot of documents. I think in the end it will be 3.5 million images. So this is our main goal um, of all the wars and all the documents. at the TNA. This is our main goal. And then we uh, provide metadata. This is what we do. And uh, we want to uh, promote research on the documents. That is our main task. So what kinds of letters are these? This seems like an unusual collection. Normally I'm working with collections from somebody's archive or correspondence with one person. So what type of documents are these? My podcast is mostly about women's letters. Are there (laughs) many letters to or from women in these papers, or is it mostly men's letters? Well, first I will answer to the what type of letters are these? And um, so, <laughs> as you said, it is 
uh, not a personal archive of one person. So we have a huge diversity of people uh, writing and supposed to receive the letters. Uh, they come from very diverse uh, social strata. They also come from many regions in the world. So we don't have only letters from diplomats or merchants, but also from more humble people like soldiers or sailors and also from women. And we have a lot of family related letters. So just people trying to keep contact with someone established abroad or someone who is traveling, such as a sailor. So we have a lot of letters from uh, spouses or siblings or even children or parents just saying, um, hey, every, everybody at home is doing fine. <laughs> we hope you are also fine. And we also have business related letters between business partners. Uh, we have even love letters, letters of condolence. We really have a lot of different type of letters from very different people, very different social backgrounds. We also have variety of languages, of course, because these letters come from many different places. And um, I think in the, the whole project documents, we have listed 19 languages so far. <laughs> it's, uh, it's all very diverse, let's say that. And to answer the second part of your question about the women, it is difficult to estimate because we have only started uh, entering the metadata for this war of Austrian succession. But for now, we estimate the proportion of letters written by women to at least 30 to 40 percent. Oh, wow. Quite big. That's higher than I would have expected. So each of you, uh, what work do you do for the project? I am the research coordinator of the project and also responsible for the PR. Uh, because, the, of course, the Prize Papers Project attached a lot of in, uh, importance to research networking and collaboration. We are a team here and at the National Archives, but of course we are dependent on um, research going on around the world. So we pursue various research projects and we cooperate with numerous uh, international researchers and research institutions working on the Prize Papers in uh, different countries in the world and in project-related areas. So please get in touch if you would like to cooperate. Um, we're always happy about collaboration. And Lisa? I am a research associate. And as you can hear, I am a native French speaker. So I am working uh, mainly on the French documents because um, Great Britain captured a lot of French ships during the different wars uh, in the early modern period. And therefore, we have a lot of documents and also letters written in French. And so more concretely, my work is, as Lucas says, said earlier, it's about metadata. So we enter metadata about the ships that were captured. We try to find every information about the journeys, the places, the dates of departure, of capture, of arrival, the ladings, uh, who was the owner of the ship, everything we can find. Then we enter metadata about the documents. So what type of document is this? In which language is it? Sometimes it is the first question. <laughs> what is it about? Who created it? Uh, where? When? And then metadata about the actors, all these people creating or supposed to receive the, the documents. So for letters, for instance, we try to identify the writer and the addressee. And yeah, as you can imagine, it's not only entering this in a database, because for every almost every information, we need to research things. So it's a lot of research also, including in 
which is really exciting. As you've been starting this research process, what has been your most exciting find? Uh, I have to refer to my, my book on which I was uh, working for quite some time, uh, which is based on a unique discovery of a previously uh, forgotten complete business and letter archive uh, of the Hamburg merchant, whom I know very well now, uh, Nicholas Gottlieb Lütkins uh, in the National Archives. And this business archive was once stored in a, in a wooden treasure chest, hidden in the hold of a, of a Hamburg ship that was captured by the English in 1742, uh, 45. Um, and this entire chest hidden really hidden under some heavy barrels of sugar was found during the inspection of the ship and then removed and then of course confiscated by the English and then ended up as evidence in the court case and uh, which led to it being kept in the court registry in 1748 where it was forgotten for centuries until I rediscovered it in uh, 2012. And this personal archive still contains all the records this merchant kept while traveling in France between 1743 and 1745 during his establishment phase. And um, the archive is really a kind of uh, time capsule because when open opening it, uh, you can gain really unique insights and deep insights into his life, into his business, into business and love and everything else, uh, what you can imagine, business and letters of the 18th century uh, of a wholesale merchant. And I based my book, a microcircle book on it, which is called The Power of Persuasion, Becoming a Merchant in the 18th Century. Some advertising here, but uh, yeah. <laughs> no, this was great. also, of course, my, my most uh, exciting find because I worked on it for some time now. And Lisa, you have any exciting finds like that? I would say that every letter, very interesting, of course. Uh, very exciting because each letter kind of contains a fragment of the existence of women or men or children who have not necessarily left any other traces. And this is also moving because, um, as you know, the, the, the mail was not delivered, so we are actually able to read a letter that the addressee were not able to, to read. So it, it's really moving too, but we don't have only letters. We have more than 80 different document types, so we also have Bill of Ladings, uh, Bill of Health, Logbooks, uh, Letter of Mark, Ransom Bills, many, many people, uh, many, many things, <laughs> many, many different uh, document types that are also interesting. And personally, uh, my favorite document type, which I, I find the most exciting, is the Mercer Rolls, which are the list of a crew of a ship. And they were established in the port of departure, and then they were updated in the port of arrival. And it gives us a lot of information about the crew members, about their age, their origin, their function, uh, also if they have deserted or maybe if they, they died during the journey. Mm. And it also gives uh, information about the passengers on board. So this is really interesting. And I, I would say that I'm we are lucky that not only the letters are interesting because <laughs> we have a lot of, of documents that are not letters. Yeah. Well, talking about the, the different types of documents, what type of scholarship do you hope that this project will assist? So the point is our main task is the complete digitization, as I already said, and the presentation of this entire collection in the data portal and uh, both teams in, in London and in London, we aim to become a, a point of, of contact. That's what we want to want to be for many project individuals, but also institutions from all over the world now already and, and in the future also promoting, supporting research on a lot of different topics, of course, uh, on global developments, migration, conflict, communication, linguistics, on different national um, languages, as Lisa said, 19 languages already 
already uh, found in the collection and um, regional particularities as well as on transnational and cross-cultural or cross-country phenomena of course also and this is uh, as we think is also our responsibility with regard to such a very diverse a very multilingual a global collection of the prize papers collection and there are as you said there are many many fold research opportunities um, and ways you can use the collection and it is already in use that so you can use it for instance for maritime history military history natural history history of the slave trade and plantation-based economies of course history of the family history of communication of migration legal history economic history and many many more so so many documents so many time capsules so a lot of research is possible there's been a lot of discussion about you know who keeps the archive who decides what is saved and this is such a fascinating collection of just everything that was on that ship at that one time like you say a time capsule it doesn't matter what class or background i mean i imagine literacy is involved but even in the case of ships musters you've even got information from people who probably weren't literate so it's just a fabulous resource i'm so excited for this project and now to sort of zoom in a little bit uh let's talk about one of these letters. Uh, Lisa, could you tell me a little bit about the letter that you picked to talk about for this episode? It's a, a letter that was written in Bayonne, which is in the south of France, the 1st July 1745 by a woman named uh, Jeannot Rouston. And the letter was addressed to Jean Rouston in Martinique. What do we know about uh, Jean and Jeannot Rouston? We unfortunately don't know much about them. Uh, we know that Jean Rouston was Jeannot's husband that he was a cook in Martinique since at least 1744, and that Janot was living in Bayonne with their children. But we don't know anything more because as I said earlier, these are letters from people who have not necessarily left other traces and everything we know come from this letter. Mm -hmm. So I really hope that maybe in later in another ship, we will find other letters from them or maybe another document that just mentioned them in just to have more information about them, because this is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know anything about how the letter came to be captured? Yeah, uh, of course. The, the letter was on the ship, a French ship called uh, La Diligente. This was a, a French ship that went from Bayonne and was supposed to go to Havana and Martinique in July 1745, but was captured by a British privateer about 10 days after its departure and was brought to Lisbon. And on board the ship, there were, of course, merchandises, but also mail. There were about 70 letters that come from France and also from Spain, but all from the same area because Bayonne is really close to the Spanish border. And um, you have a lot of Spanish letters that come from the area of San Sebastian. So it is really 70 letters from the same area. And uh, they were all captured at the same time as the ship. We have a, a traduction. I can try to read it. <laughs> it won't be as good as the French version, of course, but um, I, I can read it. Okay, fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> In Bayonne, 1st July 1745. My dearest husband, since a favorable opportunity has presented itself in the form of Gracian de Simstress son, who is set to leave for Martinique on a ship of Garderesse, which was taken as a prize by a privateer from here called La Bologne, and whom God may protect from all harm and safely guide to his destination. I cannot refrain from writing you this letter to not only inform you about the poor condition which me and my poor children find ourselves in after having been neglected by, by you for so long, but also to tell you about a rumor that you have abandoned me, which has spread here. 
It is also been said that I gave you reason to do so, which causes many people to look down on me and has reduced me to not even having the credit to buy a loaf of bread for my poor children at any bakery. What pains me even more is to see myself reduced in such an extreme manner during the prime of my life. And I assure you that I do not know how I would have responded to this situation if it had not been for my children. Due to all of this, I felt obliged to write a letter saying that I had received it from you in order to silence the scandal mongers and even to try and see if the baker will grant me credit for some bread after showing him the letter, which he did as the cross in front of the dead man. I am enclosing a copy of the letter which I had made for the said purpose so that you can see for yourself if I have done this sufficiently. On this note, I leave it up to you to imagine what condition I may be in since I have not made any impact so far, which is why I beg you in the name of God to do better than you have done up until now, if not for me, then for the children. If you neither want to do it for the former nor for the latter, then at least do it for the love of God and if you do want to send me something, then I will ask you to do with the help of Monsieur de Pesai, who is to come as part of the convoy. In the meantime, I am all yours, my dearest friend, your most humble servant, Jeannot Roustan. Wow, that's a fascinating letter. That certainly tells a little story. Um, what about it piqued your interest? So in, in her letter, Jeannot mentions a, a false letter she had made to pretend she received news from her husband and she says that she is enclosing a copy of this false letter. Uh, so it means that this false or forged letter was also on board the diligente when it was captured. And we also have it. And what happened is that I read this forged letter <laughs> before reading Janot's one. And I don't know why they were not to- together. They were not following each other. So when I read it, I had no clue about Janot, and it was really weird because I had read at this point maybe 10 or 12 letters, and they were all coming from this Bayonne area, and written in June or July 45. And I had this letter from Jean Roustan, uh, written in December 44 in Martinique, on a ship going to Martinique, so I was... I found it a bit strange, and then when I found, uh, when I read Janot's letter, it was like one of these moments when everything starts to make sense suddenly. I, I just have to say that's um, I really respect her um, strategy for writing a fake letter so she can get that credit. That's fantastic. So she's hasn't heard from her husband in a while. There's a rumor that he's abandoned her. And so therefore she has no money and she can't even buy bread, right? Is that the situation? Exactly. For some reason, people think she's guilty of the abandonment of her husband. And therefore, uh, the baker, for instance, doesn't want to uh, give her any bread. This uh, rumor who accuses the, the husband for abandoning her really discredits her and not him. And uh, because she will have necessarily given him a reason to do so, Uh, when it is she who is left with no resources and with children. So it is quite edifying, I think. Yeah. Again, if she had been blamelessly abandoned, then maybe the baker would have given her some bread. But no, it's her fault somehow. So she she forges a letter to disprove this and uses it to to try to get by. And I'm interested into why I'm just obviously, I know you don't know for sure, but why she sent it to him. Like, did I do a good enough job or police <laughs> write something along these lines back so that I can actually. And then, of course, the fact that the, the letter was captured. So he never got it. Exactly. And 
I, as you said, I, I can't say for sure why she, she wanted him to know all of this, but when I read the letter, it is my own interpretation, of course, but I think I read the words of, of, of a very determined and maybe a bit angry woman, but not a desperate one. And I don't think she's, of course, she's begging him to take his responsibilities and she says, oh, look in which poor condition I am. But I don't think it is for really seeking his pity, but more to remind him of his responsibilities and to to show him that she's um, also working by herself and finding solutions. I think it's more to, to make him feel guilty and, and remind him of his responsibilities, which I, I quite like too. And I also really like her strategy of, of doing this forged letter because it's like he has abandoned her, says the rumor, and he is far away, but he still have this authority that nobody will give her money or, or, or bread. So I think it's kind of, she can't do without him. And she, the, the only way she, she, she finds to do without him is to kind of embody him through this forged letter. Because in the letter, it's really clever, in the forged letter, it is explained why she hasn't received any goods from Martinique and also uh, it is uh, said who she can ask for money in the meantime. So I don't know if it worked. We know that for the baker, it did not work, apparently. But maybe <laughs> for this person who was to, to have her with money, maybe it worked. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that's fascinating. That's so fascinating. You did very well to, to, to say that he has not received this letter. Oh, yes. Actually, it was, it was uh, intercepted in a way. So we cannot say we have only this letter. So we cannot really be sure if he had abandoned her or if maybe all his letters were also lost. And we don't know if he has received this one. Maybe Janot has sent several copies of this or maybe she has uh, written another letter to him after. We don't know if he was aware of the situation because as you said, many, many ships were captured and we have evidence in other letters of people referring to this very complicated communication between Europe and, and America. So this is something we don't know uh, for sure. And that's also why I really, really hope that we may find other information about them later, because I'm very curious to know <laughs> what, what happened next. I, I hope her, her strategy worked. And what a frustrating position to be in where your husband is gone and you don't know if he's abandoned you or something like this has happened. So you might as well just keep pretending that everything's fine until proven otherwise. Exactly. What a terrible situation to be in. So Lucas, uh, tell me tell me about the letter that you chose. I present to you a letter written by Friederita uh, Telle in May 1798 to her also to her missing husband. These missing husbands. <laughs> um, do you know anything about this couple? Do you know what was going on in their lives at the time that this letter was written? Yeah, Friederike or Johanna Friederike Telle was a barber's daughter from Ronneburg in Thuringia in Germany, born in 1765. So she was um, 33 years old. And her husband was Ambrosius, Ambrosius Telle, very German name. 
Ambrosius Teller, who was her husband, and he was a merchant. But as the letter shows us, um, he actually left her to emigrate to America, leaving behind his wife and family with also with uh, three children. And I found the letter during one of my first research trips to the National Archives. And this letter really, I must say, moved me uh, even to tears. Because in this letter, Friederike begged her husband, Ambrosius, in the most emotional way, I would say, to send her a sign of life. Also to help her and her children and free her from her misery in Ronneburg, where she lived in poverty and without a husband since the time Ambrosius had left Ronneburg to emigrate to America, which was already five and a half years ago. This really moved me. And Friederike asked her husband in this letter to help her to come to America too, of course. I read the blog post that you wrote about this letter and you mentioned that it was in a uh, Thuringian accent, the, the writing. Can, can you explain what that is and what that what that means to you? Yes, I, I said it's uh, from Thuringia and there's the dialect, of course, in Thuringia. And the letter contains some sentences that were written as, as a phonetic spelling mirroring this dialect in Thuringia, meaning that she wrote as she spoke in a way, though that the sentences were written as she maybe dictated the letters, but I assume that she wrote it herself um, due to the handwriting. And if you read the letter aloud, you can literally hear her speak, which makes the letter even more moving. And uh, Friederikes, she's very restless, so her restlessness becomes evident due to her many indentations, her sights in the letters. There are many pauses, like pausing in sentence and so on. So her desperation really is palpable and very sonorous, prayerful, repetitive sentences. Also, she, she writes, oh God, multiple times in this letter, uh, multiple times. An example taken from the original would sound like this um, for this dialect, first in German, maybe, <laughs> just yeah. that you hear the sound. So, um, Schreibe, ob du noch immer der Gude, der liebende Gatte, ob du noch ein guter, liebender Vater von drei erbarmungsvollen Kindern bist. So write whether you are still the good, loving husband, whether you are still a good, loving father of your, of your three children. And this phonetic spelling is typical for letters, as we know, written by people from Lower Strata, causing us to also find it in letters, as Lisa said, um, by sailors, for instance, also soldiers or, or, or even peasants. So do you know how this letter came to be captured? It was also found on a, on a ship. No surprise here. <laughs> I found the letter by Friederika from Ronneburg among the confiscated papers of the American ship uh, Juno. And this ship has been captured by the English privateer St. Albans during its voyage from Amsterdam to Philadelphia in 1799. That is during the war of the Second Coalition. And during that time, such a targeted capture then of American ships even represented an important war strategy for the British crown. And of course, one must say, it was legal way of tactical warfare for both parties. So uh, not only the British uh, captured the American ships, but also vice versa. Will you be able to read the letter for us? I think that would be interesting. Yes. I mean, there's no dialect in there now. <laughs> I, I, I think you get the, the, <laughs> the content. And it's a, it's a long letter, but it's, it's worthwhile to read it in the entire letter. Ronneburg, 28th of May, 1798. Most faithful husband. Oh, what a yearning moment to write to you. Good husband, once again in five and a half years, my despair is of the highest degree. You left your fatherland, a very unhappy wife and mother, and three poor innocent children parent and siblings, without even writing to them in a single time. To not say goodbye to them is sad, for your wife who loves you, for your children who love you, who every day and hour have you in their thoughts, who love their good and gentle father and have quietly shed many, many a tear over you with their unhappy mother. For hours I have been on my knees and hugged these poor, innocent, deserted children, praying to providence that it may soon be the last hour of our suffering. O oh God, our time is not yet come. The happy moment is not yet here, which will save us from our hardship, our misery, and from the despair of God. 
Husband, on my knees I beg you, I ask you, by all that is sacred, save me, save your poor innocent children, hear the cries of the poor deserted children, save them from the oppressive suffering. They cry for bread, and I must deny it to them. This is painful for a loving mother. Even if you cannot send us money, do right so that we can only see if you are still the good loving husband, if you are still a good loving father of your three compassionate children. Oh God, how many times have I complained about such fortunate unfortunates, and now I'm also one of them. Now just one, one plea, send for me and your good children. This is my most ardent wish. I will gladly work as much as my strength permits. And even should it be work for an, an abominable society with you, uh, I would live in the most distant part of the world. Quench the desire of an unhappy mother. Hear the begging of your deserted children who sighed for their father. Do not leave them from you. Fulfill the duties that good fathers owe to their children. Be one of the good fathers, the honorable thinking husband. Do not break the bond of faith you swore to me before the altar. Then the highest blessings will be with you. Then your children will not be allowed to cry out for vengeance against a father who otherwise loved them so gently. In the month of November, your brother sent me your suitcase, sealed, bailed up without bills of lading, on the pretense that he wouldn't be moving to Warsaw and that he would not wish to carry it 1,000 miles with him. So he wanted me to leave it in my keeping. You wrote him that you would like it sent to America. In it, there are a dozen of good shirts and six trousers, some stockings, a pair of shoes and a few worn stockings. Now I ask to you to send a list of its contents to me. Send this to me quite timely so that I can have the wagoner summoned to court. He's a rich man from an area or would, you, would your brother have opened it himself? We take our leave of you with 1000 good kisses. Your wife who loves you, wife and children, Friederica Telle. Wow. Very moving. It is very moving. Yeah, it's very even even translated. It's it's very well written and moving. I guess so. This is sort of another strategy of a similar situation. In the previous, in Lisa's letter, there's a woman who's kind of trying to finagle her way into getting by, and um, it seems as though Federica's past that point, and she's really desperately begging for help. The section about the suitcase. Can you explain a little bit about what, what what's going on there? Oh, there must be a suitcase, and it's it's also a puzzle for us. So the suitcase came back, and uh, the brother was going to Warsaw, so he was emigrating too, but to another uh, area in the world. And so it was with his brother. He sent it back to her, and she cannot do anything about it, and she hadn't have a note from him or anything. Um, so it's it's like the same situation than with Lisa's letter, that she had to prove that he's at least dead, and uh, to to uh, get some money, some some support or something, but she wasn't able to. So it's actually quite comparable to Lisa's situation. And I mean, I know he never got this letter, but I can't imagine reading this letter and not help. It would be very heartless to read this letter and not do anything to help. But of course, he never got it. We know they didn't get it. And she, she's, she's a poor woman, so she won't be able to write a lot of letters. So merchants, for instance, as Lisa said, wrote a lot of letters and sent it on three ships. But in this case, she wrote maybe this one letter and it never reached him. So it's really, really wow. moving. Yeah. We did some research and so on. So this is this is a letter of, of a barber's daughter and therefore from a woman from the lower class, which makes us very, very uh, significant. So only a few letters uh, from daughters stemming from this poorer classes from this period in time have been preserved in archives. And the letter is also interesting because it is a testimony to one of the first waves of emigration to America, as it was typical at the time for people from structurally rather weak areas of the German territories to emigrate. And 
Now, the final story is significant on a slightly different level. It's the fact that before the outbreak of the corona pandemic, we actually gained the information that a descendant of Ambrosios is still living within the USA today. So, yes, it was really before the pandemic broke out, but uh, we long assumed that, that Ambrosius must have died during the voyage to America. But as it should turn out later, this was actually not the case, as we would learn in 2019, because Ambrosius Teller, in fact, had built up a new life in America, maybe also because of the tragic fact that the letter uh, never reached him to the, the capture of the Juno. And we learned about the Ambrosius life in America because one of his actual descendants contacted us uh, in July 2019 in reaction to a blog article I've written about this letter together with my colleague uh, Annika Rabke. And I still remember this special day very, very well because it was the second time that this letter moved me and, uh, and caused emotions on my side because it's always, for an historian, it's always a uh, a special moment when an actual descendant of one of your research subjects contacts you. So I'm really grateful to, to Thomas Miller from Utah for contacting me in July 2019. And Tom, as he told me, became aware of the letter by Frederica during his research on his family's past and on Ambrosius' uh, story in particular, because Ambrosius' past represented a kind of missing piece to, to the puzzle of his family and his family's past also. So also Thomas uh, became very excited when he learned about Frederica's letter from our article. So first, Tom and I exchanged emails, of course, regarding the letter and Tom's research leading to the wonderful result that in February 2020, we had the pleasure to welcoming Tom Miller and his family in Oldenburg first uh, and at the National Archives also, where he and his family could take a look at the, at the original letter. So this was a very, very moving occasion, of course, too. So he's a descendant of... After he came to America, though, so he remarried yes. when he was in America? Yes, he remarried there and uh, built up a new family. And so he never um, got back to Friederica, uh, unfortunately, maybe because maybe his, his letters were also captured. We don't know. This is uh, another missing puzzle piece. But yeah, he built up a new life there. Wow. I mean, and that's so cool just from doing genetic research. You know, you find a name maybe, but to find this this letter that is a little slice of life moment of time, I'm sure that's very exciting. That's that's so great. This is only one of 160,000 <laughs> letters and stories to be told about the prize papers. And that's really just fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for taking time out of your schedule to join me and talk about these letters. Yeah, those, we've just got two of this huge, massive collection. I'm sure there's thousands of more stories like this that are going to come out, which is very exciting. So if you find any other interesting letters, if you have other uh, uh, documents you'd like to promote, you are welcome to come back. So there are many more stories to be told. And as Lisa said, 30 to 40% women's letters because it, it's male in transit. So women send a lot of letters and they were um, confiscated. So there are more stories to be told. Some advertising, of course, please, uh, please visit our homepage, prizepapers.de. Browse the TNA catalog discovery entering HCA 30 or 32 to search the entire collection at the National Archives. And you can already um, search and browse the prize papers portal with first documents from 10 French ships, French prizes uh, captured by the British. And you can check our Twitter account uh, for all the recent news and to stay updated, of course. And Lisa just uh, wrote a brilliant, two brilliant case studies uh, on two of the ships. And uh, please read it. So I'll put all of these in the show notes um, to my listeners. Make sure you check all of these things out. Thank you very much for listening. I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much. 